Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispy, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour. Hello and welcome to the beginning of the end a Relationship Doctor mini-series. I'm your host, author and podcast star, Jessie Stevens. My debut book, Heartsick, follows three stories of heartbreak, the kind of heartbreak that upends a life and puts words around a brand of grief we, as a culture, do not respect enough. This is the final episode in a five-part mini-series all about stories of heartbreak. While my book predominantly follows the stories of Anna, Patrick and Claire, I tell a story of my own heartbreak in the final chapter. Today's episode is all about the end of an almost relationship and how it hurt so much more than I expected it to. But as I've learned since the release of my book and the countless messages, letters and emails I've received, it is in those moments when we feel the most alone that we are in fact our most connected. Joshua and I met through a friend. Our first date was at a saloon-style hipster bar in Newtown, he'd suggested, and I pretended I'd heard of when I hadn't. I wore red lipstick but wiped it off on the train, deciding it was too much. I was late and he was sitting on his back towards me when I walked in. There were lamps hanging from the walls, illuminating every table that softened our faces and made our eyes look colourless. I told him stories about the school I was working at that made me sound as though I was a good teacher. He was a musician, which made me look at him differently, like he could access a world I couldn't. Alain Dibaton writes in Essays in Love, Perhaps it is true that we do not really exist until there is someone there to see us existing. We cannot properly speak until there is someone to understand what we are saying. In essence, we are not wholly alive until we are loved. I did not know what my life looked like at 24 until I had him to perform it to. He forced me to construct a narrative in which my life was wonderful, the kind of life you'd want to get closer to. It was an experience I very much enjoyed, even if it was contrived and entirely for another person's consumption. As we messaged back and forth, I began to wonder, does a student even say something funny if there is no Joshua to recount it to? And so we met again, and I behaved like my week had been full of things that weren't him. I became the person he saw me as. It was as though every moment we spent together He was composing a sketch and I was contorting myself to fit inside the lines. Falling in love is an exercise in narcissism as much as it is anything else. I liked him, but it was the person I saw reflected in his eyes I became most addicted to. She began to look more beautiful. She was funny and clever and suddenly her life was this quirky screenplay with interesting characters and subplots. This protagonist, with her eyes and her hair and her laugh, was lovable. She had idiosyncrasies that were accidentally lovely. But the problem with lovers is that we're not seeing a person but an illusion, and then we try to live up to those illusions 
only to discover we're too human. Have you ever brought your magic to Walt Disney World like, hey, we came to play? Did you tip your tiara to a Creole princess or get goofy officially? Step up like a boss and save the day? Or see what life's like under the tree of life? Did you? If you could. Would you? When we come through, it's true magic. Because we came to play. Bring the magic at Walt Disney World Resort. Everything I'd done up until that point, I'd decided was in preparation to meet him. Every country I'd visited and every subject I'd studied. The time I put my shoes in the microwave as a three-year-old and then called out to my mother because there were sparks flying everywhere only happened so I, as an adult, could tell him about it. I told my family about him, my friends. Paula Book writes in Dare, Truth or Promise, I'm in love, she said out loud in amazement, because she knew that this was a life-changing thing and life-changing things should be said aloud. The compulsion to shout my feelings from the rooftops wasn't figurative. I quite literally felt it necessary. Everyone should know because nothing more important had ever happened. I'd found my person, a significant other who made my life meaningful. The process of building a relationship is always inventing certain futures, and what lay ahead of us was too magnificent to put into words. Conversations under dunas in the dark and summer days with no shoes on and stopping on the side of the road to look up at the stars and listen to the silence of a cold Friday night. To love someone, David Levithan writes in the Lover's Dictionary, is to live with the fear of who you'll become without it. I lived in a state of perpetual terror. That's why when it happens, it can feel like a nightmare. Because you've dreamed it. You've developed an obsession with it not happening. The only way to sleep and move moment to moment is to tell yourself it can't. That tomorrow will be the same as today. If we did not buy into that mythology, at least to an extent, we'd all go mad. The ground is constantly shifting beneath our feet. But we like to pretend we're in control of the lever. It was a Sunday afternoon and the sun was a little darker in the sky. My weekend had consisted of checking my phone and trying not to check my phone. We had been meant to go on a picnic on Saturday, and I'd shaved my legs and washed my hair. But then he'd sent me a strange message asking what I was up to, and I had to try and communicate. I'm currently free by a remarkable coincidence, but if you're not, then I'm not, but if you are, then so am I. He'd said he was going out. I can't remember where. His message left me uneasy. I felt angry but didn't say so. I just didn't reply for a few hours and then asked what plans he had for the rest of the week. But by Sunday afternoon, it had been 24 hours and I hadn't heard back. At one point, I'd considered calling. I just wanted him to tell me if this was over so I could feel pure sadness rather than this sadness laced with hope which is also known as anxiety. I couldn't sit still. One moment I would decide things were absolutely fine and I was overreacting and I'd start planning where we'd go for dinner next week. The next moment, a tug in my stomach would tell me that nothing was fine, that he'd changed his mind about me and that I'd never see him again. 
And then came the phone call. The pitch of his voice gave me the answer. He'd seen his ex-girlfriend. They wanted to try things again. I remember he said their relationship deserved that after how many years they'd been together. I listened quietly and tried not to cry. The part of me that still wanted him to like me said, I understand, and I wished him, in a tone that sounded sincere, the best of luck. After I hung up, I cried myself sick. It is forbidden to love where we are not loved, American poet Sharon Olds writes. In a single moment, the affection you feel for a person goes from being acceptable to pathetic. You're holding this enormous slab of concrete with nowhere to put it down. The other person seems to have broken a pact, the lover's contract. It was implied that neither were allowed to change their minds. I told my friends what had happened. I felt humiliated, as though I was confessing to them that I wasn't lovable after all. What I didn't tell them was what happened a few months later. For days and then weeks, I became convinced the perfect person had slipped through my fingers. I thought about him when a student said something ridiculous at work, and I realised I had no one to tell. I thought about him when I walked my dog up Mon Street, not because he'd ever been with me when I walked my dog, but because I'd gotten into the habit of always thinking about him when I walked my dog up Mon Street. Then, on a Friday night, he sent me a message. It was casual, maybe asking what I was up to. The high came back immediately. I replied and then he replied and said things had ended, for good this time, with his ex-girlfriend. The universe owed me this. Two months of suffering had been worth it if it meant we'd end up together. This hiccup, a funny little aside in our creation story. But the messages became disjointed again. A plan was made for Saturday, but then on Saturday he behaved as though that conversation had never happened. He was free the following Friday, but then over the course of the week became unfree, and maybe that was my fault for not making it clear enough that I'd like to see him on Friday. Then, finally, a Saturday afternoon came. We were meant to do something, just us, but then his housemates were throwing a party and I didn't know if that was an invite or a cancellation. He then asked me to come. I wouldn't know anyone but him. But all I wanted was that feeling again. And I knew that if he just saw me, then all those feelings would come back and this would stop being so complicated. I wore a red singlet, denim shorts and white vans. My sister dropped me over to his place in Newtown and when he met me at the door, he looked different. Sadder, distracted. He brought me out into a courtyard and told half a dozen people my name. And then he left me there. I spoke to the guy sitting next to me, trying to make small talk with a stranger. They told stories about people I didn't know, and I laughed when I thought I was meant to. Still, Joshua was gone. I stood up, pretending I needed the bathroom, but really just to see if he was still in the house. He was, chatting to a friend in the kitchen. I wondered where you were, I said, smiling. I'm in here, he said, not smiling. I discovered that night that even harder than romantic rejection is spending time with a person who is not interested in you anymore. I also learned that heartbreak makes you do awful things to yourself. For three hours, he didn't look me in the eye. 
didn't touch me, didn't ask me a question. I examined myself in the bathroom mirror, wondering if there was something awful smudged on my face. What had I done? How had I failed again? With tightness in my throat, I told him I better go. I don't think he gave me a kiss on the cheek. He might have waved at the door. And as I walked down the street on a Saturday night, hot tears fell from my eyes. He had done it again. How could I have been so stupid? To this day, when I drive past that street I once trudged down alone, I feel a stab in my chest, a jolt, a kind of romantic trauma. But I also feel a hint of gratitude. First, because it doesn't feel so bad anymore. I'm grateful it is not that Saturday afternoon, that the sun has set and risen a number of times since. And second, because it reminds me of a language I speak, a language I'm well-versed in and never want to forget. The more we allow ourselves to feel romantic rejection and let the grief pass through us, the better use we are to others. The language of heartbreak becomes a gift we are able to pass on from one person to another. One thing I recognised in Anna, Patrick and Claire and the subjects of these stories I have told throughout this podcast was a profound sense of aloneness each of them felt in their grief. It felt, for each of them, like no one understood. And there's some truth to that. I found a line in a diary I used to keep that reads, It's impossible to recall a feeling after you have felt it. You are really only imagining it. I'm not sure who I thought I was speaking to. Perhaps my future self speaking to you right now. My past self was right. I don't feel the sharpness anymore. I can only imagine it. Since I wrote that sentence, I've fallen in love again. The despair feels like a long way away. But isn't that just the point? That, as the poet Rainer Maria Rilke put it, no feeling is final? The world is full of broken people who have put themselves back together. Love is magic and heartbreak is the price we pay. If magic can strike once, it can and will strike again. And the real magic happens when the person on the other end loves you back. Thank you so much for listening to this mini-series. I hope that within it you found echoes of yourself. My book, Heartsick, follows three true stories of love and loss and what happens in between. Claire, who has returned from London to the dust and familiarity of her childhood home, only to realise something is wrong with her partner Maggie. Patrick is a lonely uni student until he meets Caitlin. But does she feel as connected as he does? And Anna is happily married with three children. Then, one night, she falls in love with someone else. You can buy my book, Heartsick, published by Henry Holt, at any good bookstore or via the link in the show notes. Relationship Doctor is a quick and dirty tips podcast. You can find out more at quickanddirtytips.com. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one McCrispy, so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.